Welcome to BrainBeat, a podcast series featuring discussions with experts on brain health and brain function, brought to you by the National Academy of Neuropsychology Foundation. I'm Pete Stabenoa, a clinical neuropsychologist and host for today's episode, where we discuss the challenges of living with brain cancer. We have a very special guest today whose insights come both from being a neuropsychologist and a patient undergoing treatment for brain cancer. With me is board-certified clinical neuropsychologist, Dr. Teresa Roebuck-Spencer. Dr. Roebuck-Spencer has worked in rehabilitation settings for over 20 years, serving patients with a broad range of neurological conditions and injuries, with a specialty in traumatic brain injury and concussion recovery. In this role, she also provided psychotherapy to patients and their families as they adjusted to cognitive impairments while returning to everyday activities. She served on the board of directors for the National Academy of Neuropsychology from 2015 to 2023, first as member at large, and then as the National Academy of Neuropsychology president. She's the recipient of the 2023 National Academy of Neuropsychology Distinguished Service Award, and she's published more than 70 articles in peer-reviewed journals. She's also edited books in the areas of traumatic brain injury, rehabilitation, and computerized neuropsychological testing. In October of 2020, Dr. Roebuck Spencer was diagnosed with a glioblastoma, taking her from the role of clinician to patient. Since then, she's undergone multiple surgeries and treatment modalities and is dedicated to serving as a patient advocate to improve the care of other patients with brain tumors and brain cancers. Welcome, Dr. Roebuck Spencer. Very good to be here. Thank you for having me. So let's just kind of jump right into it. Could you maybe start by just talking about the journey that you've been on and how it started? Oh, sure. Um, I am, as you mentioned, a neuropsychologist and was working in my private practice doing my normal routine, had no symptoms or problems up to that point. I was in my office and had started a private practice. At that point, it was October of 2020. I was in my office and had a patient going through a neuropsychological evaluation at the, at the time and suddenly started to feel a little bit strange. I was having trouble typing my password on my computer. And when I started to get up and move about my office, I kept dropping things out of my left hand. As I mentioned prior to that point, no symptoms, no problems, nothing that would alert me that anything was wrong. So I actually um, had a sense at that point, knowing I didn't feel right, that I called my neighbor who lives very close to my office and asked her to come check on me. She did. A neuropsychologist and a clinician started to assess myself. I was walking around my office, giving myself a neurologic exam to the best that I could, having my neighbor who had shown up at that point double check. I had her check my pupils, check the symmetry of my face and check my balance and all of those things that if I were the clinician that I would be looking at for myself. Ultimately, we decided needed to get me to the ER, which we did. And also being a, kind of an overachiever, I grabbed my work bag and decided to bring it with me, <laughs> thinking that this would be a quick in and out kind of thing. Because as I mentioned, I've never had any problems neurologically and didn't have any health conditions. So I grabbed my work bag against the advice of my neighbor thinking that I'd get to the hospital and be home within a few hours and continue working and writing reports as, as we neuropsychologists yes. are known to be too often. <laughs> On the way to the ER, I was instructing my neighbor what to say, because I know what you need to say 
to a, the person in the intake for them to realize this is a serious situation. And as we got closer to the ER, I started to realize something was really wrong. My voice was sounding strange. And so I, as I mentioned, instructed my neighbor as to what to say if I wasn't able to give my own history. And as I started talking to the triage nurse, I realized something was very wrong. I told them I'm about to pass out. I passed out. And then when I woke up, my neighbor informed me that I had had a seizure. From there, things started to move pretty quickly. Ended up at the hospital. They admitted me to the hospital. And I can tell you, I'll never forget sitting in the back of that ambulance, clutching my work bag with my laptop thinking, still thinking, I'll be home in a few hours and continue my work. Got to the hospital and was there for three days. Went through, you know, all of the tests that you would go through. It was very strange as a neuropsychologist to go through those tests because those are the tests I know about from working with patients for, at this point, you know, 20-something years. They found a tumor and given my history, assumed and presumed at that point that it was a glioblastoma. I know having had patients with that condition is not a great kind of tumor to have. Like I said, I was there for a few days and worked with friends and colleagues at MD Anderson and got myself registered as a patient quite quickly. And within a few days after I got discharged from the hospital, began all my assessments at MD Anderson and within two weeks had surgery. Okay. So then after the surgery, what other treatments have you experienced? I'll say I woke up from surgery and felt great. No problems, no deficits. It felt like, you know, having gone through brain surgery, as you might imagine, I kind of felt like my normal self, like I could go back to work and continue my normal activities. From there, I went through the standard of care, which is chemotherapy and radiation. From there, I went on to a clinical trial, still feeling great, other than being tired from all of the treatments. I continued to work through all of that. And probably about a year or so later, nine months to a year later, I went in for a second surgery because of concerns that I might have a recurrence. At that point, they found radiation necrosis and had a third surgery, same situation, radiation necrosis again. Mm. Um, Continued on treatment. After the radiation necrosis, they gave me a treatment for that that caused essentially a small stroke. And I have weakness and motor changes on the left side of my body. So I do have some physical problems now for which I've gone through rehabilitation treatments. And the irony of that is my primary focus as a neuropsychologist was in rehabilitation with patients with traumatic brain injury. So I ended up doing my treatment in the very facility where I had done my fellowship 20 years before. Oh my so that was a strange experience. And I'm sure I'm not the typical patient having been a rehab neuropsychologist. So yeah. <laughs> I'm quite so, involved in my care and, and know what I'm supposed to be doing and push myself pretty hard. So how is that for you? I mean, having gone through surgery multiple times, radiation, chemotherapy, all of these rehabilitative services, and then having so much awareness along the way. And I'm sure that your insight and, and knowledge is both a blessing and a curse at times. But how has this been for you just in terms of the challenges that you're facing? The tricky part for me is that as a neuropsychologist, I'm used to being the one to support and provide education to the patient. And I find that in some ways, I'm doing that for my own therapist. You know, I know where the location of my tumor was, was in the right parietal lobe. 
and initially just affected sensation in my right hand and arm. Over time, like I mentioned, the treatments, and it is true, the treatments can be as bad as the disease. In my case, that was certainly true. So over time, I lost use of the whole left side of my body. And so I'm often, when I'm with my therapist, making jokes to them about, this is where my brain tumor was. That's why I'm having this problem with my left leg. And so in that way, I'm not the normal patient in that I'm asking them for strategies. Here's the strategy I'm using. I'm using the left hemisphere of my brain to verbally mediate how to make my right, how to make my left leg move. And sometimes my therapists laugh at me. So, you know, normally our patients aren't doing that. They're not coming up with their own compensatory strategies to work around their deficits. So I think, like you said, the awareness is a blessing because I am able to stay more independent because I'm able to compensate because of that awareness. But one thing we know about patients with good awareness is they definitely have higher rates of depression because they are more aware of their deficits. At least we know about that from the traumatic brain injury world. For that reason, I've been very aware of my mental health and trying to make sure I'm getting the resources I need so that I'm able to cope. Sometimes I wish I didn't have as much awareness to (laughs) be happier. But like I said, awareness is very good because it has allowed me to compensate quite well. How about your family? How is your family affected by this? I get asked that question a lot. It's a little bit hard to answer because I'm not in their shoes. But I can say that we have gone about our normal life as much as possible. And, you know, like I always told my patients in the past, in their families, something like this does not just happen to the patient, it happens to the whole family. And so my husband and my approach has been to be really honest about what's going on. It's not like we can hide it because we're constantly going back and forth to doctor's appointments. And I've had four surgeries at this point. I have two teenage daughters. They're now um, 14 and 17. And it's almost three years that we've been going through this. So they've seen it all happen. And been very open with what's going on and encourage them to ask questions. And there have been times where it seems like life is just going on as normal. I always tell the story that I came home from surgery and my daughter asked me to order her things off of Amazon. (laughs) Okay, well, she must feel comfortable enough with the situation that she can feel comfortable enough just to be her normal self. And that's what I have hoped for them and continue to hope for them. And still seeing you in the mom role, the same role that you've been in. Yeah, that is something I welcome, you know, to still, because that's the hard part, I think, is changes in the family roles. roles. So you mentioned a minute ago, the awareness, raising risk for depression and how you've been vigilant about mental health. How are you coping under these circumstances? What kinds of things are you doing or what kind of advice would you give? patients who might be facing similar circumstances? I mean, that is tricky because I do have this awareness of the possibility of depression, not just from the diagnosis and the disability part of it, but also from things like changes in the brain and from um, medication side effects. So if I were to give a patient advice would be to definitely be open with their physician you know, their treating team about how they're feeling, particularly with medication side effects. I know that I've been a a strong advocate for myself when I felt like certain medications were causing me to have a change in my mood. So I would, again, encourage patients to be very open 
if they're noticing that they're feeling different and then advocate for help. Most cancer hospitals and programs have things like supportive care and palliative care might be called one or the other, depending on where you're receiving treatment. And I've taken advantage of that, definitely. Supportive care is often where you'll find access to psychiatry or access to psychology and to not be afraid to reach out and get those services because certainly psychology and psychotherapy, I'm a psychologist, I'm biased, but psychotherapy can be incredibly helpful and I know it has been for me. So I would encourage patients to seek that out when needed. And if they're not comfortable doing that, to definitely seek out help or support from friends and family. Yeah, That has been incredibly important to me. I don't turn down invitations when they come. Friends say, can we come have coffee with you? I never turn them down. I welcome them. And that's been a huge saving grace for me. That's fantastic. And I imagine there's times when you probably don't feel great about that. You're not feeling up to it, but you do it anyway. And Absolutely. I mean, I know the research that patients with brain injuries or dementia do better when they're socially engaged and physically engaged. So I really prioritize those things. And like you said, even when I don't feel like it, someone's calling and asking for coffee or dinner or we go out, I try to make it happen. I know it's going to help me and my mood and up my brain function better, but I also don't want those invitations to stop coming. That again is just such, I think, such great evidence, the insight that you're able to bring to this. And again, thank you so much for sharing, because I think that many people in this position wouldn't have the benefit of that experience that you've got and education that you've got and, and that insight that you've got. Just to end our discussion, what advice would you have for clinicians? Being on both sides of things now, what would you tell clinicians? I have a lot of things I can tell clinicians. <laughs> the first thing I would say is definitely don't make assumptions. You know, I've had not just not really from the psychologists, but from other staff, like maybe physicians or nursing and other, you know, medical staff, you know, through my hospitalizations and so forth. Don't make assumptions about your patient just because they've had brain injury or brain surgery and they may or may not be in a wheelchair or, or using a cane. Don't assume they're cognitively impaired, either in part or in whole. I've had people assume that just because they know my diagnosis or they see I'm having trouble walking. And that can be very frustrating and demeaning. So be careful not to make assumptions because certainly people may have impairments in one area, but not others. I certainly have advocated for myself and made nurses in particular aware that I'm aware that you're talking about me and please be aware that, you know, here's what I'm understanding and here's where I need help. So I've been quite vocal about that because luckily my cognition has been, as far as I know, spared, spared enough. And no one has indicated to me otherwise, but it's been spared enough that I can advocate for myself. So I would urge clinicians to be careful and not make assumptions about your patient that their cognition is spared or that it's impaired. Make a point to get to know them. And one thing I realize now is like I now understand why patients always wanted to show me their pictures. When I worked in rehab, patients would often show me pictures on their phone, look at what my life was like before, look mm-hmm. at who I was before. And now I understand that because you certainly want clinicians to understand you as a person in a holistic way, not just who you are now going through an illness, but who you were before and how that affects you now. In my situation, I'm a very determined person. 
I like information. And so those are things that help me navigate the journey. And I think as a clinician, knowing those kinds of things about your patient are helpful because then you know what are their values, what's going to motivate them, and trying to keep those things in mind and not just see them as a patient, but as the whole person. That is such fantastic advice. And you know, I certainly wish you all the best in the continued journey. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. So I want to thank you again for joining us and sharing your insights and your expertise as you've faced this journey as a patient with glioblastoma coming from the standpoint of being a trained clinical neuropsychologist. I also want to thank all our listeners. And for more information about the National Academy of Neuropsychology Foundation and neuropsychology more broadly, please visit our website at nanfoundation.org. And also be sure to follow our BrainBeat podcast on Twitter at at BrainBeatPod. Thank you.